Hey everybody, welcome to episode 11. 11 episodes. As always, with us is Josh Landris, Jay Landris Brass in New York City, and uh, I'm Steve. I own Virtuosity in Boston. Uh, we've got a special guest this week. Uh, this is Ben Wright, second trumpet player of the Boston Symphony. Um, ben has had a quite a run here, and it's really great to have him on. I mean, Ben and I talk frequently, but it's it's nice to kind of be able to dig into some stuff here. Um, and as long as he doesn't duck out alive, he, he's not going to be able to get away. So that's cool. Yeah, I want, I want some tough questions. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, over the span of two decades in the Boston Symphony, preceded by his time in the Chicago Symphony, uh, as well as an instructional role at the New England Conservatory, Ben has cultivated expertise in fostering independent thinking, physical efficiency, problem solving, and instilling a heightened sense of confidence in trumpet playing. Uh, throughout his years, Ben has navigated and resolved challenges related to physical injuries, career setbacks, performance anxiety, as well as aspects like flexibility and strength. Um, eager to impart this approach, he coined it T5, training trumpeters to teach themselves, which is a philosophy directed towards highly motivated players who want to expedite their goal attainment. Uh, ben later extended that philosophy into his Sound Truth Library, which is a collection of nearly 250 video recordings that span from audition excerpts and video tutorials to the symphony stage selections. Presently, Ben continues his dual career in performance and teaching, persistently guiding students to cultivate independent thinking, physical efficiency, problem-solving skills, and an enhanced confidence in trumpet playing. Ben, where did you begin as a musician? Tell me a little bit about your musical background and how we got to where you are today. I come from a family of musicians. My uncle uh, is Steve Wright, uh, who is a semi-retired, uh, fantastic trumpet player in Minneapolis. Um, and I suppose I got the idea of playing the trumpet from him. My dad is a, a, a retired clarinetist, was an awesome clarinet player. Um, you know, as much as trumpet players can believe that clarinetists are awesome, he was awesome. Um, <laughs> and I say this fully knowing that he, he may listen to this at some point. So, yeah, Dad, you sound awesome. Anyway, but no, so I grew up in that sort of musical environment. Um, and, you know, a lot of people tell me over the years, I'm talented, oh, it's natural talent. I don't know. I mean, I think when you grow up listening to, I grew up listening to like a fantastic musician. He had great pitch, great intonation, great sound, great musical instincts. And I wasn't paying any attention, but that stuff just, I think, just seeps in. Um, I've seen students acquire that from just listening to hundreds of hours of music. But it's literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of music. Funny thing is, we didn't listen to music in my house at all growing up. Was was never on. Was never on. Uh, I think, I don't know, maybe for my dad it was just like, you know, he didn't want to do work at home or whatever. Anyway, um, but no, so I started on violin. I was a terrible violinist for seven years, but I think it was good for my pitch. Uh, started trumpet when I was 10. My first teacher had a beautiful sound. Uh, he, he was in the Evansville Philharmonic, the local orchestra where I, I grew up, which was a, a, it's an excellent regional orchestra in Southern Indiana. And then I had a great teacher named Stan Curtis who replaced uh, Jim, Jim when Jim went off to be a park ranger and retired. Um, Stan is at UC uh, Fort Collins now in Colorado. Great, great teachers. Just, I remember sitting in his studio listening to Phil Smith play Mahler 5, and I was like, 
ooh, that's what I want to do, you know. And I think I decided when I was like 13, 12, 13, 14, that's what I wanted to do. And that was it for me. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah, which is great and also awful because, uh, I mean, I had tunnel vision. Man, that's that's it. That's all I wanted to do. Um, but no, so you know, worked out well. I you know, sort of got all I could get from Southern Indiana. Then I went to Interlochen for my senior year of high school. Uh, ended up at the Cleveland Institute of Music with Mike Sachs, which was a great place to be. Uh, went to Juilliard. What else? What, what other details do you want? Ah, that's uh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm a I'm I'm a trumpet player, and as Tom Rawls likes to say, trumpet players can talk. We uh, it's my my favorite subject is talking about myself. Uh, it's what trumpet players say. But um, no, so I, I went to Juilliard, and actually, I think you know Mark Gould a lot. You could say a lot of things about Mark Gould, and probably most of them are true. Um, f- for me, Mark was such a great teacher. He he said to me in the first lesson, he says, Benny, I want to teach you how to teach yourself. Like that was like in the first lesson. Um, he also told me I was in New York, so I was no longer Ben. I was Benny. Um, <laughs> and then and then he told me that I sounded like crap and other things. And he was only, only mostly serious. Um, but no, it was good. He was a great teacher because he really encouraged me to think, okay, you're having this issue, but why are you having this issue? Um, and I really kind of started to dig into some things that I just had, you know, like I listened to Mike Sachs for four years. And I'm like, how does he do that? How does he do that? You know, like, and I, I had no flexibility when I left school. I had no flexibility when I got my first job. I got so lucky that the first audition didn't really push any of that I won, which was for the Kennedy Center Opera. So I got to Juilliard, and, and the first professional audition I took was for Cincinnati Symphony when Chris Karajif, my great buddy in Cincinnati, won that job. And I played three excerpts and went home. And I remember as I took a... Can we swear on this podcast? Sure. So I remember saying, um, I took a breath, and I went, oh, fuck. And I played three excerpts, and I went home. And that was it. Um, the next audition I took was for Long Island Philharmonic, which was against like New York freelancers and, you know, some of the hotshots from Juilliard and whatever. And uh, I won that audition. And then the next audition was the Kennedy Center for Second Trumpet. And um, I won that audition. And I think having those successes and the successes I had at undergrad, like winning solo competitions and stuff, is like, is a little bit of a drug. You know, you get. Y- 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 you want that when you play well, you want people to react to it positively. And when you get that initial hit and you get on the right track, then it's, you know, success really does build success. So I feel like really lucky about that, that, you know, I mean, for instance, at the Kennedy Center, I think my semifinal round, that was the best that I had ever played any of those excerpts in my life on in that round. Um, and that just doesn't happen that often, but like, I guess I was pretty good at taking auditions. Um, I was pretty good at playing, pretty pretty good at playing well under pressure. That's a tough skill to uh, master. It, it is, and I would say that it, it didn't. It was not natural talent, and uh, it, it was it was repetition, right? So when I was in high school, you know, like 
I knew if I wanted to go someplace, I needed to win a scholarship. So there were like scholarship competitions to to go to Interlochen and scholarship competitions when I was an undergrad, I go to to Aspen and um, you know concerto competitions at, at Cleveland and like solo competitions. Like when I was a senior at Interlochen, I I I, I placed second in the college division of the ITG solo competition in Akron. I remember it was in Akron, Ohio. Scenic Akron. Yes, yes. Uh, Terry Everson was actually one of the judges. We we laugh about that. Um, but no, I think if you want a career in performance, you need to practice performing like a lot. And, you know, I tell people it's like, if you're used to running a mile, don't decide you're going to go practice the Boston Marathon, right? So set a reasonable expectation for performance. Perform at church when you're a kid. Perform town hall go to go to uh, retirement homes and play you know go t- go play for receptive audiences try to build some good experiences so that that performing is fun and actually for me performing is fun uh, what wasn't fun was the preparation the the torture of preparing for any of those things was like like it was like trying to crash land an airplane and then the day of all the clouds clear and i just there's the runway and i just go um so, but we could get into the psychological neuroses of that, but I don't think that's a good plan. Uh, so, <laughs> so is it the Kennedy Center? And then um, this audition came up for Chicago for Fourth Trumpet, which had been open many times. Were right? you so, were you at a school when you won Kennedy Center, or no, were you was, still at no, Juilliard? No, I was at Juilliard, and, and um, Gould was the only per, only teacher there. The only no. Chris Gecker also encouraged me to go. But Gould was the only one who didn't. A very famous uh, <clears throat> teacher there said, you know, Ben, you should not, you should not take a, a, you shouldn't leave the Juilliard school lightly. You never know when you're going to need a degree. And I'm like, I don't need a degree from the Juilliard <laughs> school. <laughs> I didn't like, I didn't like the Juilliard school. I loved Mark Gould. I, I love the people I was in school with at Juilliard. I was in school with Kevin Finnamore. Um, great trumpet player in Dallas Symphony, one of my closest friends, uh, Bailash Nemesh. He's principal in one of the German orchestras. Now, he can play anything. Um, Billy Hunter, same thing. Yeah, so lots of great players, great people, uh, but I, I hated the school, and I was I was glad to leave. Um, and, and the Kennedy Center was a real, uh, was a real learning experience. Um, first rehearsal, East German conductor, second trumpet you think it's your solo you know he was all over me i looked like i was 12 years 12 years old had the glasses the baby face um uh but i got my tenure there and then uh the the audition came up for chicago and um so i went to chicago and i never forget after i won the audition i came back i i I jumped right into the pit and played uh marriage of figaro and chris gecker was playing principal he was subbing in it was so cool I was like, hey, Chris, I just got a job in the Chicago Symphony. He's like, oh, it's so good, Ben. Oh, it's so great. You know, he's so, he's so calm. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, wow, Ben. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Um, great. He was a huge influence. I love Chris. Chris I stayed with Chris for summer. So, yeah. So then uh, Chicago didn't work out. It's not a good, was not a good blend of many things. Uh, I did, I was, I was denied tenure, um, 18 months in and um and the first audition i took after that was for a colorado music festival which was a summer gig and they hired me on the spot which was cool so i realized i didn't suck 
people have been telling me for a year and a half that I sucked. A couple people were telling me that. So it was nice to believe I didn't suck. And then the next audition was Associate LA Phil. I was the last person standing. And the next audition was fourth in Boston. And I won that audition. So and then I got here and it was also an interesting cast of characters. Um, but, you know, Tom, Tom Rolfs and, and many people on the committee were really supportive. And um, so I got my tenure here. And then a few years later, I don't know, took taken five auditions for the BSO. I auditioned for principal. I auditioned for associate principal and did well in both of those auditions and didn't get hired. Thank God Tom got hired. He's a great principal trumpet player. And then, um, and then, then we hired Tom Siders on the third go round for associate principal, which is great. Tom is awesome. And then I moved up to second, and we hired Mike. So it's been it's been we've had a stable section for eleven or twelve years, and uh, we we get along. And um, you know, we have our disagreements from time to time, and we move we've uh, move on, and it's a functional unit. So it's pretty cool. Very cool. That yep. seems to be one of those things that I wouldn't say it's a I guess it's not a rarity, but it, but you can tell when a section is, you know, meshing well, you know, both personally and musically. I mean, it's just, you know, you can hear the interplay um, and, and maybe this is a topic for later, but maybe we can get into it now too. the the politics, both interpersonal and musically can be tough balancing in a section um, because, you know, I think we all remember when, you know, at conservatory where you'd have um, four principal trumpet players playing different parts and, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody trying to drive the bus. But once you kind of accept your role and, and figure out how to work with your colleagues, it it just makes all the difference. I mean, you know, I really enjoy listening to you guys play because I, I can hear you guys working to help each other. Um, mm. achieve the best goal and you know same goes for the low brass section as well yes yes no it's a uh it's a we're playing uh bartok bluebeard's castle this week and yeah we're just yeah i heard just, you lost your bluebeard <laughs> yeah 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 i guess we did i don't know i'm like <laughs> if we're playing all this music I'm like feels like there's something missing <laughs> You know, because I'm an idiot trumpet player. I'm like, oh, there's no Bluebeard. Um, anyway, I guess he arrives tomorrow. Oh, good. Th- this is not. This is this is not my problem. Um, <laughs> but no, no, we do we do get along, and um, uh, we play together as a unit, and we try to support each other. Um, you know, y- you got to remember, pretty much everybody in the Boston Symphony was a principal player before they got to the princi- to the Boston Symphony. You know, so I hear people say, oh, man, I really want to play second trumpet. I'm like, that's cool. Now play principal trumpet for all of school, but also learn how to play second. Um, Because I didn't, I certainly, it wasn't my career goal to play second. I just wanted to play in a big orchestra. And I definitely wanted to play principal. Um, But then you get older and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I don't need that stress. And maybe somebody is going to be better at that than me. And, and then that works fine, you know. So, but it also makes a big, it's a big deal that like, you know, I play with a principal player who appreciates the strengths of the players in the section and, you know, doesn't, he doesn't get agitated about that. So anyway, but that, that's maybe a subject we'll come back to. I did manage yeah. to talk about myself for quite a long time. Do you, you must have questions. 
I, I have I have a lot of questions. You you you're also an educator, right? Yes. You have a pretty big studio, and what you're doing online with um, the Sound Truth Library, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people learning for that. Yeah, but I want to talk were, about that. Why yeah, I, I would I would love to talk about that because okay. I, I've checked out some of your videos. But where did your background in teaching? Where did the teaching come from? Like, if you're you know you sounded like in talking about yourself, it's been a lot of you know, goals as a trumpet player and to Mm -hmm. win a job in auditioning and performing. Where did the education and the teaching come to play in that storyline? So here's a funny story. So I went all the way through school and, and, you know, like, I'd love to have a conversation with Mike Sachs about this just because I think he'd be amused to hear me say this. But I went through four years with Mike and the better part of a year with Mark Gould, although I'd say to Mark all the time I left school early, you still owe me lessons. And then he just he just swears at me, which is amusing. Um, it's on brand. Nobody ever once said anything to me about up and out with air, right? Like that. Like years years later, I'd had I'd had the fourth job in Chicago, fourth job here, and second job here, and I hit a wall when I was like thirty nine, where like I barely get a note out, and. I had to change everything. I changed mouthpieces. I changed trumpets. Um, but mainly I had to start understanding what I didn't understand about the trumpet. Because I sat next to Tom. At that point, I'd been sitting next to Tom for uh, 12 years. And Tom is just not a normal human trumpet player. Like he He's the juggernaut of all trumpet players. He's like, if you could combine Phil Smith, uh, Bernie Adelstein, and Bud Herseth in one, you'd, you'd have Tom. He's like a... He's like a human dynamo on his instrument. And no matter what you do, it's like trying to catch a laser on foot. Like you just, that's a Mike Martinism. I got to give Mike credit for that. Um, but I, I just wanted to figure it out, right? And so uh, there's all kinds of stuff I didn't know. And so I would teach these classes with Tom and he would say, up and out with the air and lift the air and and open with the air. All this stuff that he learned from Arnold Jacobs. And I was like, I don't I don't know what that means, Tom. Like, I've been listening to you say that. You know, we're teaching this class together. Show me what that means. And this was like maybe eight or nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I don't remember now. I think that's a, a, a function of middle age as you start to not remember whether it was time. Time years. blends together. Yeah, it wasn't nine years. It was 12 years. I don't know. But like, we so a seminal moment for me was we're playing Beethoven violin concerto at the hall and I'm in the basement, like I'm warming up I'm the rotary and I start trying to play the, 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 you know, for those of you who don't know it, it's got this soft low a lick that is deceptively difficult. It looks very easy, but then the conductors are doing this and the soloist is slowing down and there's nothing else going on. And the horn players have played it much softer than you could ever hope to play it. And, I couldn't get the note to come out in the basement. And I said, Tom, ah, I, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And he says, well, play the note. So play the note and he reaches over and pokes me in the stomach. He's like, well, how are you moving your air? I'm like, well, fuck it. I know. I don't know how I'm moving my air. Like, you know, I think because I could play some things really well when I was an undergrad and through grad school, most of what I got was coaching and I got world-class coaching, right? Um, I got into Tanglewood at my audition my junior year. Um, you know, I won a job early. Like, I did a lot of stuff right. I didn't really know how to play the trumpet until I got 
my second or third, no, my third job. I didn't start to really learn how to play the trumpet until I got here. Um, I just didn't really know. And so edu the education part was I, I started teaching at NEC and the students that I had were not super talented, right? So they had, they had way more problems than I ever had. So I had to try to help them fix their problems. And, you know, I would call Chris Gecker like once a month, be like, hey, Chris, how do I fix this? Like, what do I, what do, I do? Um, and so I'm just kind of curious by nature. I like to figure out how to fix things. There's the woodworking thing. I liked how to build things. How do things go together? Um, you know, and the two things that eluded me forever, it seemed like, were uh, flexibility and strength. And uh, I had started working. I remember Chris Martin was in the Philly Orchestra when I was at the Kennedy Center, and he came down to visit. He's warming up in the basement. Five minutes after he starts warming up, he's playing a lip trill from C to D. And I looked at my wife and I was like, yeah, I can't do that. You know, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And it took me a long time. And it's funny that for me, uh, lip trills were a, a much better way for unlocking flexibility than, say, lip slurs. You know, where you're going, when you're playing from partial to partial, da 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 that kind of stuff. That stuff for me still is kind of like, yeah, I don't, it just doesn't do anything for me. Um, for me, it was more about chromatic scales and uh, um, lip trills. So, okay, so I'm at the Kennedy Center. I've won a job and I know I want to get another job. Not because the people at the Kennedy Center were super nice. Tim White's a great trumpet player. Um, lots of nice people in that orchestra. I didn't want to play second in a, in a pit. I just didn't want to do it. Like I, I wanted to try to get in it. So then, well, how did I do it? Well, I sat and I listened in my basement. I would practice an excerpt for a week and do everything I could figure out to work on it. And then I would record it and I would listen to it. And then I would listen to Phil Smith play the same thing from the excerpt CD. And so like pretty quickly, I would listen to say Leonore 3 and say, okay, I got that. I can play that. It's not exactly like Phil Smith, but I can play it as well as him. Petrushka does not sound so good. What's the problem? Then I have to invent exercises. Or I have to find exercises like what makes it easier? What, you know, how do you work through the thing in the middle? You know, and then you start to learn through trial and error when you're teaching the things that work with students or the things that work with me don't always work with students. And you know, my wife always, who's an amazing cellist, an amazing teacher, she's like, you have to teach the student where they are, not where you think they should be. Um, so a lot of that is, a, you know, it's like a kinder approach and like a little bit more intuitive. You know, like Mark Gould didn't teach me the same stuff in my lessons as he taught Kevin Finnamore, as he taught Billy Hunter, as he taught Balash. Or maybe Balash didn't study with him. It doesn't matter he did for each student what they needed, right? And so that was like a really, you know, Mark Gould is a role model. That's crazy, right? But it, yeah. but, but <laughs> in, in that way, he, he really was for me. Um, um, so yeah, so I thought, I always thought with my students, what if I had a huge compendium? That's a good word, compendium. What if I had a huge collection of videos of the best possible rendition I could do of stuff, because I'm, I'm not going to ask other people to record stuff for my students, right? 
what if I could record that stuff? Well, then the pandemic hit and my kids were lower than vaccination age. So they didn't offer a vaccine for the, for the boys until like 15 months in. So I was home for like 15 months. So, so for the first few months I was like, well, I guess I'll make furniture for a living. So I may, I worked for a designer in Boston. I made, I, I did a couple of big jobs um, and it was super stressful. Um, just making built-ins, you know, fancy built-ins for uh, well-to-do people in Boston um, who just didn't care about the pandemic. They were like, yeah, come on into my house. <laughs> uh, so, so that was weird. Um, but then I thought, oh, now I can make this library. And also I was like, oh, I can also figure out this whole Jacobs thing. So I got, you know, The Spake, uh, Arnold Jacobs, and I read it, which is it's a terrible book. There's a lot of good information, in it, but the writing's awful. Um it's definitely not Pulitzer Prize material, but I learned, I just learned so much about like all the stuff I'd heard Tom talking about for so many years and I'm like, oh, that's how that works. And then I started teaching online because I had to, because we took a 30 or 40% pay cut. And because I like teaching and very quickly learned that if, if the student has a, even just a, a decent microphone, and this is just a, this is an expensive one by this is an apogee mic which brand new maybe cost 300 bucks but any snowball mic or yeti or whatever plug it into the damn computer and if i've got a good view i can help them through like the physical stuff i learned from alexander technique and uh, the stuff that i've taught myself and like i get to the point where i didn't even need the only thing i couldn't work with with zoom was if there was no mic and no uh, no knowledge about it. like and then there would be like like I couldn't hear anything like, um. But no, I I didn't really buy. I mean, do I like teaching in person better? Yeah, but what I loved was that I recorded this whole library and I'd be like, okay, hey, you're working on Petrushka, go get in the library. There's a thirty minute tutorial, which by the way is free on YouTube uh, if you want to check it out. Go check it out. Do all the exercises. I'm not going to waste your lesson time taking you through these exercises. I want you to take the responsibility and the agency to listen to the tutorial, put that stuff to work, and then come back. Some people really do that well. You know, like Ben Hauser. Like Ben Hauser, man, he was on it. Ben uh, studied with me for somewhere like right in the beginning of the pandemic. Just He studied with me for six months or something like that. He's had lots of great teachers before and after. But he did win an audition really soon after that. And I don't take credit for that. But I will say that that he he used the library like you should use it. You practice something, you practice it, you, you learn it, and then you record it and listen to it. And then you listen to a better version and you figure out what's not, what am I not doing that I hear there? And you make a list and then you practice and you repeat. And then eventually, and then I was like, once you can play it as well as me, then don't ever listen to me play it again. I don't care. That's the beauty to me of the library. So then like trying to figure out like, so then, so for a while it was like, you could only get the library if you studied with me on my online seminar. I'm doing less of that now because uh, we're more back in person. Um, so, but all my students at NEC have access to it. Um, tried to price it at a reasonable level. I think it's like six cents a minute. Uh, if you, over the course of a year, if you, Put, add up the total minutes. So now the library is just like, it's just available for students. Like, you know, and to me, like the idea of sitting in a practice room and banging away at Arben, Clark, Gecker, Schlossberg, Stamp, uh, 
Thibaut, uh, any number of other things, and not being, I don't really know how this should sound. Well, we'll just pick pick up your phone or your computer and listen to it, like, right? So mine is not the best version you'll ever hear, but I will say that it is a very accurate version, right? The microphone was, sorry, 18 inches this far away from my bell. So it's a sound that you can imitate in your practice room. So I found it to be pretty useful, you know, and people seem, you know, people who take advantage of it seem uh, pretty stoked about it. And I'm certainly proud of it. You know, um, I recorded some stuff that I never thought I could record. Um, and that part was fun. And I, I am a little bit, my wife informs me that I'm a little bit odd that I actually like recording myself. I like and you 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 record in a small room, right? You yeah. when you're yeah, just I just uh, so the room that I recorded in was my family room, which is maybe twenty two by fourteen. Okay, yeah, yeah. So not and and it's got a carpet and some furniture in it. So it's not a boomy room. It's a comfortable room to play in for me. It's not super dead, uh, but it's also not it's not boomy at all. The reason for recording in the smaller room was that. So many students come to me and they're trying to play with a giant sound because they hear, you know, Tom Rolfs, Chris Martin, Esteban, whoever. They hear these recordings where the sound on stage is not what they're hearing. They're hearing the sound that gets, you know. Reverberated around, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I'll never forget hearing Tom play Ravel Piano Concerto standing backstage and listening going, wow, that sounds really tonguey and bright. I wonder what it sounds like in the hall. And you go in the hall and it's like, perfect it's like the best thing i ever heard um so and every hall is different so i think it's better to have that's why i called it this sound truth library sounds kind of pretentious but the idea is it is the sound that we make on stage you can hear it's more accurate so and and i will be the first person to say if you listen to the Mahler five tutorial it's sharp it's all sharp it's exciting and it's good but it's sharp so it, it ain't perfect so where does the symphony stage uh, portion of this come in? So I'll tell you how Ben Hauser uses it. So symphony stage is basically where you take a piece like Till Spiegel or Shostakovich Five that's on a lot of auditions, multiple parts, right? So let's say you're 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 prepping for the Philly fourth trumpet audition, right? So you practice the third trumpet part, and then you go to the section of the Sound Truth Library section, and you 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 click on Shostakovich Five March Trumpet One and Two. Right. So then there's a there's a there's a count off. And you, what you'll hear is me playing first trumpet and second trumpet. And then you play the third trumpet. And I tell people use one earbud so you can hear yourself. And then you can also hear that crank the earbud up to 11 and and then play along with it. And what we what I learned with Ben and Ben was sort of the um, Ben Hauser was the guinea pig was um, does it work? And he play. He was working on Magnificat, and there's this is also on YouTube. You can hear him play on Magnificat. And the first time he said it to me, and I had to mix it on my computer and all this, I was like, "Yeah, that's not very good, man. That, that's not that's not close <laughs> at all." And and let's talk about why it's not close. And so we would listen to it. Does the articulation match? No, yours is longer than mine. Uh, does the phrasing match? Well, yours is a little bit kind of like not as expressive, you know. We just went through it facet by facet, and then he made those improvements, and then the last one's pretty damn good. It's like, you know, it's pretty cool. You know, and everybody got sick of it. Oh, I don't want to learn online. It's like, come on. Like, you, you should use every single tool you can use to, to learn to get better. 
So that's 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 my feeling. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Do you see any expansion coming for the for the whole Sound Truth uh, Symphony stage? Where are you headed with that? Do you have other things coming down the pipe? I don't know if I'll ever have the amount of time that I had during the pen. I'll never have that kind of time again. Um, you know, the BSO was great. And they said, look, you have the option. You can come in and do these recordings or you can stay home. I stayed home because my kids were not vaccinated. And so I had all that time and I, and I used the hell out of it. I would say, so like, here's an example. My, uh, a fantastic student, uh, in a uh, former student in Chicago named Deanna Lopez, She's taking an audition this week. She's having trouble with one of the licks from Till. She says, hey, can you help me? So I just make a video and send it to her. Well, I can just like put that in the library. Most of the recordings in the library, like done with a microphone and like, you know, f you know, 4K video. And like, you know, I did all the audio on um, uh, Logic Pro with a nice mic. But sometimes it's really useful just to get quick hits. And so I've been doing more of that on Instagram because, you know, like I think it's helpful and it's easy for me. Um, I don't mind recording myself. I also don't mind. Uh, I love that the, after my video with Elmer, which has the most views on my on my account, the second most views are the one for Mahler 7 where I missed the high C. <laughs> <laughs> that just proves that you're human. No, it's like like 96 hours people have spent watching that. It's hilarious. Yeah. You yeah. think of how much of, of people's lives you've taken away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're you're ba you're balancing now between playing and teaching and doing so your in-person teaching and your online videos, a hobby or, or as you call it meditating. But how do you balance it all? Okay, I, so I, now, I let me really just say that, let me just say now that that woodworking for me is meditative. But I just recently finished a, a mind-body stress reduction course, which I, I thought sounded awful to me. And then I got in it. It's two and a half hours every every week. And then I got in it and realized I had I, I was going to be assigned to meditate. Eventually, we were doing an hour a day. Just sitting, right? And I thought, there's no way I can do it. And now I love it. Like, I love it. Like, it, it is so calming. Like I'm so hyper, it's just, it's taken my temperature down. Like I'm just more even in a good way. So yeah, so yes, I do all those things. Uh, I'm a very involved parent. Um, uh, I've got 14 year old twin boys. Um, and you know, 14 years old means there's a fair amount of time they don't want to spend with dad, but um, um, you know, Certainly, I was really involved when they were when they were younger. Um, so yeah, no, it's a balancing act, and you know, it's like, you know, if you ever try standing on one foot and then putting your arms up in the air, which I do in yoga, and I do some yoga at least once a week, um, you feel your ankle and your whole body is constantly rebalancing, and so like if you take that as a metaphor. That's what we're all trying to do is we're trying to stay balanced. Um, so you do things in your life that feed healthy habits, right? Yeah. So when I make a piece of furniture uh, or cut a piece of wood, if I screw it up, I just make it smaller or I burn it. It, 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 <laughs> it, it it's, I have the evidence it's, that way. It's Well, it's not like a concert or a recording where, you know, some people put sort of an outsized importance on 
you know, how it goes. I mean, I've played a lot of performances. Like, you know, I mean, Tom and I were laughing about, like, how many times we've played Rite of Spring. I mean, hundreds of times I've played Rite of Spring. Um, so you get used to it in a certain way, but there's there's moments, there's moments in almost every piece where you're like, oh, that's not easy. Um, so then when you leave work, you need ways to kind of healthily handle that stress and so for me woodworking has always been that like because i like to figure out problems uh yeah cool we have some questions that have that have come in um that was earlier when you were discussing some playing stuff from uh jack o'reilly he asks what's your take on the phrase use more air (laughs) i think uh use more air is um maybe a little bit too general to be, I think, useful. Um, I think maybe the way I would put it is uh, we need fast air to play the trumpet. And so um, you can use more air. For instance, you can go... (laughs) So I tell people to like blow blow an air powder on this phrase. And so go... (gasps) For Petrushka, and I'm like... um, well, that might work on a tuba, but we're using a very small hole and our lips are very small and we're playing quite high. So it's more like, it's like a very easy airstream. You know, it's like, um, so when, when somebody says use more air, yeah, maybe, uh, but mainly it's like you, you need faster air. How do, what does it sound like? If the sound is dull, you could be overblowing, right? Because if you blow the seal and your lips do this, then you end up with slow air, right? If you if you under if you underplay, right, you can end up with a dull sound because it's just kind of hollow, you know. So so it's finding that that sort of amount of air to use where you're not like forcing it. But I mean, trumpet is a pain in the ass, man. It is like I had I had one I had one student who said to me recently, and he was I would say a chronic, uh, I call it underfunding. Like he underfunds the air. He just didn't want to commit. He did not want to miss, and so he said, "I don't like the way it makes my insides feel when I, when I real." And I'm like, "Oh, well, then you probably shouldn't play the trumpet because like when you when you take a big breath and then." And then you you fund it by moving the air towards the exit with your your diaphragm and your stomach muscles. Um, it, it definitely squeezes your organs. You know, I mean, you don't you don't want to feel crushed, but um, yeah. So I think use more air could be helpful, but listen to the sound. Listen to the sound and and make make judgments based on the sound. I like this question that just popped up here. Um, it says, "Hey Ben, do you have a?" Favorite BSO on tour story? I'll tell you a story of resilience that I think is pretty cool. We did a tour five or six years ago where we played Shostakovich 4 and Mahler 3. Those were the two tunes. And if you don't know Shostakovich 4, get out there and listen to We have a recording of it with Andres. There are other good recordings, but it's really good. Um, and, man, it is, it is, it is a big, gnarly... Uh, awesome piece and just just enjoy listening to it um 
you really get a sense from that how much his style changed when he went to Shostakovich 5. But Shostakovich 4, and then the next night was Molly 3. And on one of the Shostakovich 4s, Tom kind of overdid it, played, maybe played too loud. I don't know what it was, but he, he, he injured himself a little bit. And the next night, we had to play Molly 3. And I don't think I'm telling a story that he wouldn't want told because I, I, I tell it with huge respect because he he sat in that hotel all freaking day putting Robinson's Remedy on his lip and playing like <laughs> long tones and like he knew what to do to get himself to the point where he could play he could play Molly 3 very effectively I think it was one of the most beautiful post-torn souls I ever heard um it didn't sound careful at all it definitely was softer than I was used to hearing him play it it was so beautiful um and he did it like i was like how 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 you know and all three of us were just like how is he how is he gonna do this and and for sure you talk about teamwork in that in that performance any place where the other three of us in the section could step up and help we did you know i mean there's in, in the end there's really only so much that we could do and he he did the heavy lifting um but that's a good tour story funny tour stories so touring is is fun after the concerts but it it's it's stressful and it's like it's funny like it took me so long to learn like the violinists are out sightseeing and people are like oh you're going to europe is that so fun i'm like well it's beautiful it's beautiful but like i'm telling you like it took me forever to learn really what you have to do is sit in the practice room sit in your hotel room and play when you need to play and then maybe go for a walk right and i'm not i'm not claiming hardship at all but tours tours are anybody who's been on tour knows and i know that the bso tours are super cushy like talk to some of these these people who do tours with like traveling shows like broadway shows like i i would i would I would just completely die. There, I, I would. I would sound so bad. I have so much respect for people who do that kind of work. It's tough. I've got. Yeah. I've got one here, and uh, maybe we start wrapping up here. But um, what is it? <clears throat> um, some for those of you who don't know, uh, Maestro Nelson has a background as a trumpet player as well as a conductor. How does that play into your? Does that make your job? easier or more difficult or both he is an awesome human being andres is just a he's just a he's a, a wonderful human being um i love that when we have a big clam if we look up he's laughing <laughs> like he thinks that's hilarious right? right um so i mean what it means is we play a lot of big we play a lot of trumpet heavy stuff yeah, the um, Shostakovich opera that you just did was, yes, mega. epic, epic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of it's a really unpleasant story. It's, it's yeah. like every every time I looked at the subtitles, I was like, oh wow, that's really oh he just said that. That's really that's really inappropriate. It's really <laughs> kind of you know, it's not a. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Shost. I mean, you know, you got thrown in the gulag for that. Um, so yeah, but no, honest is he's amazing to play for, honestly. Um, yeah. Awesome. And then is, is there, 
you, do you have any upcoming performances as we try to get out of here? Any uh, any upcoming performances, lectures, any projects that you have upcoming um, that you'd like to share with us and that people can hear, see, well, check out, learn so from? I'm, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, uh, so I was asked by uh, Pro Arte, which is a, a excellent chamber orchestra in Boston, to um, to play concerto. And this was before the pandemic and it got canceled. And then they asked me to do afterwards. They said, well, we do, we still want you to play concerto, but we would like for you to play music from an upper underrepresented composer. So I listened to, I listened to all the concertos that were out there. And quite frankly, none of them appealed to, to my sensibilities. And I, I, none of them I thought were a good fit for their group. I and mean, I was going to play Neruda and I don't have any problem not playing Neruda. I'm, I'd like to play like, a new piece. So then I said, "Well, hey, do you guys have any money f to commission? Could we could we commission a piece?" And says, "Well, yeah, we can, we can, we can, we can tr contribute some." So then I started like uh, thinking about like composers that were composing, and I went through like I went through this list of people, and you know, was looking at people of color, I was looking at, at female composers, and so I landed on Elena Longer. So she's writing a concerto for me um, to play with Pro Arte, and we're just working on the funding because you know I need some grants to fill in the the blanks. So that's kind of cool. And she and was really cool when we were in London last fall or whatever the heck that was. Yeah, but I I got together with her and we played through some of her sketches, and she'd written um, Flutter Tongue in a low F sharp or something, and she says, "Oh no, it sounds like fart." <laughs> <laughs> So it was, it was, it was, it was cool. It was kind of cool to like be able to work with her and like, Oh, this might work better. We could try this mute. Um, and, uh, the reason I chose, uh, I asked her was I, I got a chance to play. She wrote a piece called, uh, Figaro gets a divorce, which is a really cool opera. And we played the suite from that twice. And the second time, uh, either Tom or Tommy was out. I can't remember. So I was playing principal in the first half and I got to play this, kind of a big solo it was like almost like a almost kind of like a tango kind of thing which went really well and she talked to me afterwards and so then i was like oh hey do you remember me i played the solo a tango and she did and she also remembered i guess i was practicing uh near the tangled lake which i thought was annoying but i had to do it because i just I had to practice for 10 minutes in the afternoon and that was where my trumpet was and whatever. Anyway, so suffice it to say, it didn't annoy her too much because she's writing, she's writing a piece. But so that, then that's, that's going to be next year. Yeah. Yes. That's going to be great. Yeah. Yep. That sounds um, awesome. Well, thanks everyone for joining uh, long tones for our 11th episode. Uh, ben Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope next time you're in town, you come by the store and uh, we can chat and meet in person. That would be really, really that sounds, awesome. That sounds great. If you haven't done it yet, please rate and review this podcast and or others that, so that way we can improve uh, and make this just a great opportunity for everyone. Yeah. And don't forget to subscribe to our socials at virtuosity underscore Boston and at Jay Landris Brass. Um, Ben's socials would be at Ben underscore right underscore trumpet on Instagram and keep in touch with what he's doing over there. Don't forget to go to BenWrightTrumpet.com and check out the Sound Truth Library. There it is. Yep. There it is. Which you also have a link to on your Instagram profile. Perfect. Yes. If I remember correctly. Yes. Yep. 
Beautiful. And check out his, if you haven't heard and you're listening to this on the podcast, do check out his videos. Um, as I said earlier when this started, that some of the trumpet players here in the shop really dig your videos. So awesome. All right. I'm glad to hear great. it. Yeah. So thanks, everybody. Have a great evening. Ben, thanks so much. <laughs>